was good, wasn't it, eh? Praise the Lord. Well, come on, let's begin to pray and reach out to the Lord. I want you to stretch your spirit towards the Lord right now as we begin to pray in tongues. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. That's right, move your body as you pray. Let's just let ourselves free up now, throw off all the stress and pressure of the day. We're into a time in the presence of the Lord. Father, we come into your presence boldly by the blood that was shed for us. I will bless the Lord at all times. Your praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make a boast in the Lord and the humble will hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Father, we honor you and bless you and praise you. Father, we open our hearts to you tonight. We thank you for bringing Shane here. We thank you, Lord, for his anointed ministry as a teacher to the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the connection you've given us to him. We thank you for bringing him here tonight. Father, we pray a flow of revelation from heaven. We pray, Lord, for your presence to flow through the words he speaks tonight. We pray, Lord, for a, a spirit of revelation to be upon us tonight as we open our hearts. We are hungry to be fed, hungry to receive from you, Lord. We're hungry to receive from you. Lord, we pray that as, even as he ministers, the confidence and the flow of life will bring forth a revelation of the shepherd's voice. We ask, Lord, in the midst of what he speaks, that we will hear you speak. We will hear your voice to our hearts, your voice to our lives. Lord, we open ourselves to receive tonight from you. We thank you for, Lord, wonderful messages that are impacting in our lives and thinking. Let it continue tonight and tomorrow. And Thursday night and over the weekend, let that flow from heaven continue in this place. And Jesus, we give you all the honor and all the glory. All the honor, all the glory. Go to you, Lord. All the honor, all the glory. All the honor, all the glory. All the honor, all the glory. Let's give the Lord a clap, shall we? A wonderful Jesus. How we just thank you, Lord. Well, we've got two sessions tonight, and uh, after the first session, in the first session, we have a break for uh, supper, and we take up an offering to uh, just uh, a love offering tonight. So uh, let's get ready to enjoy ourselves. Why don't you say hello to someone behind you and around you? Give them a high five. I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you made it. Hey, man. I made it. Hey. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, good. We're ready to go. All right, I want to talk to you tonight. Just, we're just going to jump right into it because we've got so much to do. There's no time for playing around. And um, it's a, I, want to first, I want to start out tonight by talking about faith. By talking about faith. So um, if, um, of, of, all the, of all the ethnic um, groups of people in the world and all the different types of cultures and races and stuff, I have a rule. I can only make fun of those that I am. So I can make fun of white people, okay? So, because uh, I'm white. And, uh, and so we, we, we have a certain way. But if, you, if, if, if I was to um, take a survey of, of people who uh, come from Europe, okay? So we, we find our lineage somewhere in Europe. And I was to ask these people, when you're talking about good-hearted people who are on their way to heaven, saved as saved can be, if I was to ask them, 
why, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Why, if you died today, would you go to heaven? It's 90 some odd percent of them would give me the same answer. If you've got to, you have to say it in one sentence, just one sentence. Why, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Everybody would say something close to this. I would go to heaven because I believe in Jesus. Because I believe in Jesus. Now, now, there's a problem with that, isn't there? And that is this. Is there anybody in hell who believes in Jesus? There are lots of people in hell who believe in Jesus, particularly demons. I won't say people because it's not my place to put people there. Um, but we'll say demons. Well, so there's lots of demons in hell who believe in Jesus. And they don't just believe in Jesus. They actually are scared to death of him. Okay? So, so they don't just believe in Jesus. They actually have this certain respect for who he is. And yet they still find themselves in hell. So obviously then, belief in Jesus is not enough to save us eternally, okay? And we're talking about eternal sort of salvation stuff here. Um, it, it's, it's got to be faith. And so I, I met with, with my mentor, and we started fleshing this thing out about faith. And I want to show you what faith means. We started talking about this last week, and then I never got back to it, and nobody reminded me. And I got way off somewhere, and then no one reminded me. So I just left these three words on the board with no definition, no anything. But, um, but, but, but that's okay, because you're here tonight. And there we go, all right? Now, there's three steps to faith in, 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 this, in a Hebrew concept from a rabbi, okay? The first step is tefillah. I'm going to say this in Hebrew, and then I'm going to say it in English, because Hebrew has a certain alliterated kind of ring to it, okay? Tefillah, second step is teshuva, and the third step is sadaka. So if you asked a first century Hebrew teacher, what does it mean to have faith, they would have said tefillah, teshuva, sadaka. Tefillah, teshuva, sadaka. Doesn't it have kind of a it has this sort of ring to it, tefillah, teshuva, sadaka. So when Paul makes statements like, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He, in his mind, he's a first century rabbi, he'd be thinking tefillah, teshuva, sadaka, tefillah, teshuva, sadaka. Now, the, the Hebrew language um, originally was pictures. They were all pictures. So every Hebrew word, every Hebrew letter is a picture. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because where did the nation of Israel come from? Egypt, right? There were a group of people, started out as a family. That family ends up in a place in Egypt. They grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So it stands to reason that as they developed their own way of thinking, that they would have had a language similar to the Egyptians, which was hieroglyphic. So the, the, the Hebrew language originally was pictures. It was pictures all the way up to Babylon, so, so the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew people, just to give you a quick history lesson on this, the, the, the Hebrew people were, um, uh, were, how many were here Sunday night? You were here Sunday night and you did the whole, yeah, everybody, that's pretty much everybody. Okay, so, so you remember the whole thing on the Caesars and the, okay, okay, thank you, thank you, that's very encouraging. Um, and, uh, it, yes, I love that. And, um, and, and so there was, there, was, there was this thing on this, well, if you look at the history of the Hebrew people, they were in slavery to Egypt for 430 years. And then a guy named Moses comes in and he rescues them out of that slavery. And then they were like out of slavery for 430 years. And then they get re-enslaved. And we're going to talk about that later in this week, why they got re-enslaved. Part of the reason was is because this group of people who were slaves and God freed them from that eventually started enslaving people again. Solomon had forced labor building the temple of God. So this God who hates slavery so bad, he got this whole group of people out of it. The very group of people that he got out of slavery into freedom, they turned around and enslaved people. Which, I guess that has nothing to do with us. But um, it has everything to do with us. And, um, and, and so then they get enslaved into Babylon, and they're in Babylon... Um, uh, the, from the slavery in Babylon to the time of Jesus was exactly 430 years. So, so to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people were waiting on a new Moses to come and kind of save the day. So when Jesus comes along the scene and the writers are using, people are proclaiming things like peace on earth and goodwill to all men. In other words, what they were saying was, was Caesar is not the answer. This guy is. This guy is. It was all 
uh, uh, this political thing. So, so anyway, so back to this group of people in Egypt. They, they, they developed this language um, in pictures. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word then is a comic strip. Okay? I might preach on this one Sunday morning, but it's, it's worth giving it as a great example now. Like the Hebrew word iniquity. The Hebrew word iniquity is, you'll never forget this as long as you live. The Hebrew word for iniquity is the word avon. Okay? It's the word avon. Yes, all the old school Pentecostals say amen, right? Even the word for makeup is sin. I told you, Mildred, I told you. <laughs> By God, I'm telling you right now, I told you even the word for that makeup stuff was sin. See, that, it, 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 all the old school Pentecostals love that. Okay, now in, in Hebrew, the O does not exist. We put the O in English so you know how to pronounce it. In, in Hebrew, it's just A, V, and N. Okay, this is really going to help your Bible study, okay? This will really help your Bible study skills. If, if, if you know, uh, maybe one night this week I'll teach you the whole picture alphabet, okay? Because um, once you know the picture alphabet, you can take Strong's Concordance and it gives you the spelling. Then you can put the pictures on it and you can see the comic strip, okay? So, um, is that, everybody following me? Yeah. yeah, okay. Does that sound interesting or boring? That'd be okay? All right, so, um, so, so these are three letters, all right? Ein... Vav and Nun, all right? So A, V, and N, Ein, Vav, and Nun. Now, now the picture of A is an I. The, the picture of Vav was a hook. And I'm not going to attempt to draw these things. I'm a terrible artist. It was, it was a hook, uh, which, by the way, can you imagine being a scribe between Moses and David? <laughs> like, all the Psalms would have been written like this. Um, and, and Nun was fish, that we're multiplying. So it's kind of like uh, one fish becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. Like it looks like that. Okay? So, so when a Hebrew person read iniquity, they would see this word, I, hook, fish, multiplying, eight, von. So when a Hebrew person read iniquity, what they read was, was whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. Whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. Which, isn't that true? Isn't that true? If you've ever done premarital counseling, you, you know this to be true, because two people come and they're in love, and their eye is hooked to all the good things. Yeah? And so I've had them sit in my office, and I'm saying, uh, you sure that you want to do this? Yes. And I'm like, sir, have you seen the way she acts when she doesn't get her way? And he's like, oh, yeah, but it'll be okay. We're in love. And and, and, and how many of you know, like, four months into that, it's like a disaster, right? Because your eye, it's not because anything's changed. It's just because the focus of your eye has changed to something different. The focus of your eye has changed. Um, how many of you have ever been guilty of, of focusing on everything you don't have instead of being thankful for what you do? Whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. Has anybody besides me ever been guilty of, of wanting something really, really bad to the point where we thought we'd die without it, and then we get it, and it's not what we thought it was? <laughs> That's what this is. It, it, it's iniquity, which should, which should, I'm just using this as an example of their pictures, but we may as well preach a little, um, which should give us a revelation on grace, shouldn't it? It should give us a revelation on grace, and, and that is that um, and there's three levels to sin in, in the Hebrew culture, three levels to sin. The, uh, the first stage, I won't say levels because that makes it sound like one's worse than the other. We'll say stages, okay? Stage, stage one is iniquity, and, and that's when your eye hooks to something, and it starts multiplying. So, so let's say I want this pen. Like I, well, let's just say my eye hooks to this pen, and, and I just really, it starts, my need for it on the inside starts to grow. Because my eye, and even if I look over here, my eye's still drawn to this pen. Yeah. Any guy in here ever been on a car lot and your eye gets drawn to the V8? <laughs> even though petrol's $1.85 a liter, but your eye gets drawn to the V8 because you'll be more of a man if you have the V8. <laughs> and chicks dig the V8. And so our eye gets hooked to it. <laughs> Now, at some, point, at some point in that journey of my eye hooking to this and it multiplying, it creates something inside of us. It creates something that the Bible calls a lust. 
And, and once that lust is in us and we in, are enticed by it, that's when the Bible says we sin. The Bible says a person sins when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. He's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So, so, so my eye hooks to it, it creates a lust. And, and now I'm having a lust for this pen. I really want it. I need it. I have to have it in my life. I, I might die without that pen. <laughs> Come on, this is about all of us, isn't it? I mean, it might not be a pen, but it could be something else. And so that's sin. That's level two. So you got iniquity, then you got sin. The third level, the third stage is transgression. Now, transgression is when I actually take the pen. It's when I actually do something. So in the Old Testament, could you prosecute somebody for iniquity? Could you prosecute somebody for having iniquity in their heart? Absolutely not. Why? Because you didn't know it was there. How would you know? How would you know? Could you prosecute somebody for sin? No because you don't know it's there. But you could prosecute somebody for transgression, because if you had two or three witnesses of somebody transgressing the law, that's when you could prosecute them. Right? So Jesus comes along, and he starts blowing people away. He starts saying things like, you have heard it said, don't murder. Now, is murder an iniquity, a sin, or a transgression? It's transgression. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't hate. So he starts bringing the standard back to iniquity. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust. Wow. So he starts bringing it back to iniquity, which should give us a revelation of grace. Because the Bible says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the avon of us all, the iniquity of us all. In other words, Jesus doesn't just forgive you for what you've done. Jesus forgives you all the way back to where your eye hooked to it. Hmm. That's grace. That's grace. So, so anyway, do, do you see where like all the pictures can like make the Bible go? Right? Well, so if you take these same pictures... And you put it on tefillah. So you got, this is faith, tefillah, teshuvah, sadaka. So you got faith here encapsulated in three things. The, the first one, tefillah, that is prayer. The, the second one is teshuvah, and, and that is repentance. And, and the third thing is sadaka. And, and I'm going to define sadaka with the word itself, Okay in just a second, all right? Now, if you take the pictures and you put it on tefillah, all right, because I haven't taught you the picture alphabet yet, so you'll just have to take my word for it. You, you, you have this idea of, of prayer. Now, can anybody tell me when was the first mention of the idea of prayer in the whole Bible? Here's just basic Hebrew hermeneutics 101, okay? It's called the law of firsts. So what's true of the first mention is true of every other part of it in the Bible. What's true of the firstborns, true of the whole family. What's true of the first fruits, true of the whole crop. What's true of the first words, true of the whole book. What's true of the first letters, true of the whole word. Okay? So it's this kind of thing. It's the law. Anytime in the New Testament you're reading something and it says, and, and Jesus, like for instance, we talked about this Saturday morning, and Jesus came the fig, along by the fig tree and he didn't see any fruit. He only saw fig leaves. Well, one of the first things you do as a Hebrew hermeneutic is you would say, well... Um, where's the first mention of fig leaves in the Bible? And it's, all, of course, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, so you can go look at those kind of things. So I started asking questions like, when is the first mention of prayer in the whole Bible? And it's way later than you would think. It's actually in Genesis chapter 4. It's the last verse of Genesis chapter, tw- chapter 4, which is like verse 23 or something, and it says this, finally the sons of Enosh called upon the name of the Lord. Finally, the sons of Enosh called upon the name of the Lord. What, what the rabbis said about that was that it took that many generations for people to overcome the shame of Adam and Eve and begin to address God again. So if you go look up that word called, the idea of prayer, this idea of prayer, this is what you see. You've got three pictures. You've got the front of, you got three heads, three letters, three heads. The front of the head, first letter is the front of the head. Second letter is the back of a head. And the third letter is an ox head going into a yoke. All right? So you got the front of the head, the back of the head, and an ox head going into the yoke. This was the Hebrew idea of prayer. 
as found in Genesis chapter 4. And that word morphed into the word tefillah. Okay? So you got front of the head, you got back of the head, and then you have an ox head going into a yoke. So that tells you a comic strip. So what would a Hebrew person, when he read prayer, what would he be seeing? Front of the head, back of the head, ox head going into a yoke. What a Hebrew person sees is this. Follow follow the pictures. That prayer is a turning of the head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. That prayer is a turning of the head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. Uh, Let's say it this way. Prayer is being God conscious. Prayer is being conscious of God. Conscious of God instead of conscious of myself. Prayer is any time I take my focus off of me and put it onto him. In other words, the, the, the Hebrew idea of prayer had very little to do with words. Matter of fact, Jesus was against long babbling prayers. Jesus said, and, and, if, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the Pentecostals do. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. <laughs> the, the longest prayer Jesus ever prayed takes like 25 seconds to read. So it would have taken him less to say it. Yet Jesus could go off and pray for an hour. What was he doing for an hour? How could you pray for an hour and not say anything? What was he doing? What would you do for an hour? You would turn your head in order to face the one who could bear the burden. And then after that hour where you were completely conscious of God, only then would you speak out loud what the Spirit of God had put on your heart to do. And that takes a very short amount of time. We do it backwards. We speak until we feel God. They would feel God and then speak out of that. Two totally different things. It's a turning of the head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. Now, now teshuva meant repentance. It could mean a couple of things. It could mean to change your mind, to change your thinking. It, it also was an exile term. These, these were a group of people who were used to being enslaved by people. And, and the prophets would come to them and they would say things like return to Shuva, to Shuva, to Shuva. In other words, there's a kingdom that's available to you that has nothing to do with this. You can return to that. So, so let's put it in, in context that tefillah, teshuva, tzedakah, tefillah is to turn the head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. Tefillah is when I step out of myself and I begin to become aware of the mighty one who's with me, the mighty one who's in me. That tefillah is when I become totally aware of God and he and only him is the mighty one, the creator of the entire universe. Every bit of him is within me. The kingdom is not this way or that or up and down. The kingdom of God is the last place we look, which is inside of us. That is prayer. Repentance is, is once I'm facing the one who can bear the burden, then I position myself to change my thinking to how he thinks. Which is a bigger shift than we would think. We all like the what would Jesus do bracelets. We love that. We love the what would Jesus do bracelets until someone slaps us on our right cheek. <laughs> and then we're supposed to turn the other cheek. We love the what would Jesus do bracelets until someone asks us to carry their pack one mile and we're supposed to carry it too. Yeah. We love the what would Jesus do bracelets until someone insults us. The Bible says in 1 Peter, I'm very much paraphrasing this, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and 3, basically this, that Jesus was hurled every kind of hurt and insult imaginable and yet he took it and said nothing and left it with God. Mm. Could you do that? Can I do that? Tefillah, teshuva. Then the last one is sadaka. Now, sadaka is really cool. Sadak, this is a compound word. Sadak, that just that part of the word, is the word righteous. So you can see how faith leads to righteousness. Um, sadak, if, if you put the pictures on this, there's three letters. City. Dalit and Kof. City, Dalit, and Kof. Um, city 
is um, the picture of city is a fish hook with bait on it. it. It's a fish hook with bait on it. And so when the Hebrew people saw the letter city, it meant the desire of your heart, what lures you, what baits you, what draws your attention, what sort of Avon thing happens, what actually desire, what desire in your heart is that? City is the picture of a fish hook with bait on it. Dalit is the picture of an open door, which is easier to understand because it just means the pathway into something. The, uh, open the door to. It's, it's simple to do. And, and, then, and then kof, kof is the picture of the back of a head. It's the picture of the back of, of a head. So, so in other words, the, the Hebrew idea of righteousness is this, that the desire of your heart opens the door to your humility. The desire of your heart opens the door to humility, and that's righteousness. So righteousness is the desire of your heart opens the door to humility. If you put a ha on the end of that, that is an open window, which means to reveal something. Because remember, windows back then were made of wood, not glass. So to open a window meant to reveal something or to let wind in or to let the spirit in. So, so, so to reveal something. So the word sadaka means righteousness revealed means righteousness revealed. The, the Hebrew people, they have a way for doing their money, which is really cool, and you ought to check it out if you don't know it, because um, they have 4% of the population, but they have 40% of the money, which means they might be onto something. Yeah. And, and they don't even believe in Jesus, most of them. It's just principle. And, and I was sitting by a rabbi once on an airplane, and, and, he's, and, and we, it was one of those great eight-hour flights that you get stuck on the, on the runway for two hours. It was really cool because there's so much room on an airplane. And, um, and so we got to talking, and I asked him if I could ask him questions, and he said, sure. So I said, listen, I, I, I've discovered this thing about Taruma and first and second and third tithe, three tithes, and just the way they do their money. Can I share that with you? And, and so I shared it, and he said, oh, yeah, he said, you've got it spot on. I said, Thanks. And he said, you know what that whole thing's called? He said, we have a word for the whole thing. I said, what? He said, sadaka. Sadaka. He said, over time, the word sadaka, which means righteousness revealed. You see Jesus talking about it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you do your acts of righteousness, do not do them before men to be seen, but do them before your heavenly Father who is in secret. Sadaka, acts of righteousness. That word morphed over time to mean generosity. Generosity. So that today, in certain Middle Eastern countries, the beggars sit on the side of the road and they go, Sadaka, 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 Sadaka. Show me righteousness, show me righteousness. That, that to reveal righteousness meant to be generous. Jesus said your acts of righteousness were what? What were the three acts of righteousness? Prayer, fasting, and giving alms to the poor. Prayer, fasting, giving alms to the poor. Sadaka. Sadaka. So, so, so let, let's simplify this a bit. So faith then is a mixture of turning my head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. As I turn my head to face the one who can bear the burden, I change my mind to think like him. As I change my mind to think like him, he regenerates my heart and lets me do, at some points, even greater things than him. Sadaka. That is faith. And living a life like this, it's really easy to make grace cheap, hey? Because there's a part of grace that's free, but it's not cheap. Like, are you forgiven of every sin? You'd have a hard time making a case otherwise. Jesus said in red letters, every sin a person commits will be forgiven him. Every sin. Every sin a person commits will be forgiven him. Except for unforgiveness and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, but, but does that mean that it's, that, that it's cheap? No, because Paul said it this way, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So, so you're going to have a hard time ever out-sinning grace, 
the, the problem is, is that holiness is the best life. That, that holiness, see, see, God might forgive sins, but people say because God forgives sins, that means he's not punishing sin. Well, let's think about that. Let's just assume for a second, let's just say God doesn't punish sin. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying let's assume for a second that that's, let's take an axiom that that might be true. I don't think it is, but let's just say it is. Even if God doesn't punish sin, sin has punishment built into it naturally. Sin has this thing called death that's built into it by nature. So even if God takes his hand off the punishment of sin, sin itself, and we could say it this way, even if God's not punishing sin anymore, sin punishes you. Just the natural consequences of what it is. So, 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 so the best life then, it comes from a life that, that is built around tefillah, teshuva, tzedakah, that every day, every day, this is a daily thing. I love this definition of faith because it's not a definition of faith that says, hey, pray a prayer once and you're in. It, it, it's a definition of faith that says every day I can pick up my cross. Every day I can turn my head and face the one who bears the burden. Every day I need to change my mind to make sure my mind is thinking like he does. And every day this should be producing acts of righteousness. That it should produce something in life. And one of the things it produces is trust. Is trust. And I want to talk to you the rest of this first session about trust. We're going to talk about leadership and God's biggest idea. That, that one, of the, one of the responsibilities we have as leaders is to trust. And one of the trust factors, that one of the things that trust is the antidote for is temptation. Is temptation. Uh, years ago... Um, the, this group of psychologists, they were doing a study. It was a longitudinal study, which is very rare, but they do it. I don't know how they do it because how would you do this, but they do it. What they do is they take a group of people and they study them over a long period of time. Same group of people over a very long period of time. It's called a longitudinal study. And what they did back in 1965 is they took a group of six-year-olds and they were going to study that same group of six-year-olds from six to 36. So from 1965 to 1995, they were going to track their progress You'd have to compensate people pretty well to do this, I would imagine. But here's what they did when they were six years old, is they put all of these kids in a room. So all these, and this is the, one of the questions they were asking. How does a kid's ability to delay gratification at six translate to that same kid's ability to delay gratification at 36? Pretty brilliant. So, so what they did is, is at six years old, here's how they tested their ability to delay gratification. They put homemade piping hot chocolate chip cookies in front of them. So, so they came in, and, and they, they sat these kids around a table, and every one of them had a plate with a piping hot, still smoking, freshly homemade chocolate chip cookie in front of them. And they were only given one set of instructions because six-year-olds can't handle more than one set of instructions. And the instruction was this, you cannot eat your cookie. That, that if, you, if you eat your cookie, there will be no consequences. We're not going to be mad at you, but you will not get the prize. If you can wait 10 minutes, if you cannot eat your cookie for 10 minutes, then we're going to come in in 10 minutes, and we're going to take your one cookie away, and we're going to give you three cookies. So if you could just wait 10 minutes, we're going to give you three cookies. But if you can't wait 10 minutes, you can eat your one, but that's all you'll get. So they left the room, and then they go behind one of those, like, mirror things and film them. And so they watch the behavior of these kids and these kids sitting around and you can see the, 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 the willpower start to break down. And one kid leans over and starts smelling <laughs> his cookie. One kid actually took his plate and licked <laughs> his cookie because it didn't say you couldn't lick it. It just said you couldn't <laughs> eat it. So finally, there's this moment of breakdown. There's this moment of breakdown, isn't there? And, and, and the, the one kid, the kid that's going to break first, somebody's going to break <laughs> first. The kid that's going to break first picks up his cookie. And there's this collective, no! It's, it's kind of like um, in, in Star Wars 3, remember when Anakin becomes Darth Vader? Remember that? Which, I didn't ruin that for anybody, did I? Like he does become Darth Vader. <laughs> 
and like he's Luke's father. It's like weird. Okay, so uh, if if I ruin that for you, I'm sorry. But um, but but like because of how the guy did Star Wars, like you know that Darth is Luke's father, and you know Anakin is like Luke. So you kind of put it together. So in Star Wars three, you're going into the movie theater knowing that he's going to become Darth Vader. And, but you're sitting there, and the whole way you're like, no, if you could only know how this is going to turn out, this is going to be really bad for everybody. <laughs> how many of you know decisions like this are really easy to see in other people, but very difficult to see in us? It's very easy to do. So, 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 so they, they, the kid picks up his cookie and eats it, and once one kid ate his cookie, then there was a chain reaction other kids started eating their cookie, but some kids held on. And so at exactly the 10-minute mark, the people in charge of the study came in, and they took everybody's plate away. And the plate that still had one cookie on it, they replaced it with three cookies. And the plates that had nothing on it, they got nothing. And so the next day, they came in. Now, you would think that the kids who, who could not wait the first day, when they saw the three cookies come out, you would think the second day that they would wait because they know three cookies are coming out. They can trust who's in charge to do what they say they were going to do. But what they actually found is over the course of 21 days that the kids who ate the cookie on day one kept eating the cookie every subsequent day. And every subsequent day, they ate it quicker to the point that by day 21, the kids who ate the cookie on day one, actually, as soon as the cookie went down, they just ate it. (laughs) They didn't even give it a go. And the kids who waited on day one, the kids who waited on day one, actually by day 21, found it very easy not to eat their cookie found it very easy. And what they found, what this psychological study found over 30 years was this, was that a six-year-old's ability to delay gratification was directly correlated to that same six-year-old's ability to delay gratification at 36. Now, before you panic, (laughs) I guess there's always Jesus. (laughs) Hmm. Because how many of you realize that that a six-year-old not being able to delay gratification is one cookie instead of three, but a 36-year-old not being able to delay gratification, that's lost employment. That's buying huge items that you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. That's, that's huge ramifications. That's broken relationships. That's a spoiled brat who just, if he can't get his way, runs every time. That is the ramifications of someone. So how many of you realize that uh, that, that sin, that temptation, is there's just always more than meets the eye. It's just always bigger than what it thinks. See, to see, um, I want to talk to you the rest of this session about temptation and trust. I want to talk to you the rest of this session about because with temptation, it's, temptation is one of those um, topics that leaders have to deal with. And it's also one of those topics that if you're here tonight and you've been saved for 40 years, you deal with temptation. If I took, if I took a, um, a group of people and I put someone who's been saved 40 years, someone who's been saved 30, someone who's been saved 20, someone who's been saved 10, someone who's been saved 10 minutes, and someone who doesn't even know who God is, if I put them in a study group and I said, your topic for tonight is temptation, everybody would have a story to tell. It's not something that's limited to just a few people. It's not something that's limited to just, uh, it brings us all into one boat. And I want to, obviously, I want to use Jesus' temptation. I want to use the temptation of Jesus to, to, to bring this together. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. So Matthew 3, 16 and 17, then it goes straight into Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, and then straight into Matthew chapter 4. It says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And a voice said from heaven, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. So you have this huge fireworks show at Jesus' baptism. If, if, if your dad, or if you're here and you're a dad, if you made this big of a deal at your son's baptisms, the church people would just go nuts. What, do you think he's that special I mean, there's like lightning and thunder and birds and all kinds of things happening. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Next sentence. Then, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Then. Which is kind of an odd sequence of events, isn't it? This is my son. I love him. I'm so proud of him. Now, come on. You've got to be tempted by the devil. 
You can see why in two chapters when he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, and when you pray, part of what you say is, please lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation. Why? Because Jesus was led into temptation, and it just is hard work. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world in their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is such an odd passage of scripture. It's such an odd passage of scripture because the truth is, is the first time I ever read this, with the exception of the last temptation, I couldn't figure out why the first two were sin. The last temptation was worship Satan. That one's obvious, okay? The first two temptations turn stones into bread. What's wrong with that? Who, who, gave, who gave Jesus the power to turn stones into bread? God did. Has Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights? Yes. Would he, was he hungry? Yes. Would God want him to be hungry? No. Would God be okay with Jesus using power he gave him to meet a legitimate need? You'd think. You'd think. And then the second temptation was, throw yourself off the mountain and believe angels to catch you. Well, odd, but sin? See, see I realize that none of, us, none of us will be tempted like this. None of us. No, you will never, within reason, you will never be tempted to turn stones into bread. You'll just go down to New World and buy you some bread. Okay? You'll never be tempted to throw yourself off of a mountain. You know, imagine that. Hey, got an idea. Throw yourself off a mountain and believe God to see if he'll catch you. <laughs> Probably won't happen. Um, and most of us won't be tempted to worship Satan. Most of us. That, that kind of is too obvious. We probably know that. But every one of us will be tempted like this, though. So in a way, none of us will be tempted like this. But in another way, every one of us will be tempted like this. It, it turns stones into bread. Every one of us are tempted daily to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. It's a huge one. Meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Your needs are legitimate. But I have an illegitimate way for you to meet it. All of us, particularly people who call themselves faith people, there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. And so particularly faith people, we're tempted to presume upon God's power. We just presume upon it. Throw yourself off that mountain and believe God to catch you. <laughs> we, we, in church work, we do it all the time. <laughs> like, we, we, like we come and we say, hey, we got an idea, and it's not well planned. It might be a little immoral, maybe even illegal, but it's an idea, and we don't have the money to even come close to doing it. No common sense of any kind tells us that we're in a position to try to accomplish this, but we're going to believe God. And that's how we frame it. So, so, so we frame faith. Now, if there's a way, if that's faith, then that's holy. But there's another way, if it's flesh, then it easily becomes, we're just going to presume upon God's power. It sounds like this, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, and then I'll just believe God to fix it up. And it's like, Jesus is like, God doesn't work that way. In the South, um, I'm from the South, by the way. I'm, I'm from the South. Um, in, in the South, um, smoking cigarettes is like, like, in California, it's illegal to smoke um, inside a building. Um, in South Carolina, it's, like, illegal not to smoke <laughs> inside a building. And um, they, they, it's, it's, I've prayed for people all over the South with lung cancer. And, and they've smoked four packs a day for their whole life. And, and you ought to see what their lungs would look like if they were taken out of their body. And so I pray for them, and then they go, and they still smoke. And I say, what are you doing? They say, oh, we'll, we'll just believe God. And we'll just believe God. We do that all. We do things like that all the time. We presume upon God's power. The, the, the third temptation is to take a shortcut. Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world, which was Jesus's anyway. It just wasn't Jesus's right then. 
Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to God, but the earth he's given to man. Then eventually at the end of the story, it all goes back to God's and God uses us to, to rule. But right now, the, the, the kingdom of this world, it's given to us and, and, and to the prince of the power of the air. And so the prince of the power of the air says, hey, I'll give it to you now. I'll give you a shortcut. If you worship me, you can avoid the cross, you can avoid all that pain, and I'll give you the end of it anyway. But Jesus realized something very quickly, that a kingdom is not a kingdom without people. Hmm. So, so, so meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way to, to take a shortcut to God's plan and to presume upon God's power. These are the temptations. And what I realized is two things with temptation. I realized that in this that there's a couple of keys to beating temptation that isn't what we think. And I can tell you what doesn't work. Let me just tell you what doesn't work. Willpower. Willpower. Your emotions will override your willpower every single time. Willpower just typically doesn't work. Has anybody besides me ever promised God that you would never do something ever, never, ever, never, ever, never again? And how many of you lied? We all lied. Yeah. Yeah. But, but two things will help us beat temptation. And number one is this. I, I think if we can simply pause and we can step back and we can realize that there's far more at stake with temptation than meets the eye. There's far more. One of the biggest lies in the world is my behavior is between me and God. Listen, if your behavior is between you and God, do whatever you want to do. God can handle you. Your behavior is never between you and God. Your behavior affects everybody around you. Yeah. There's always much more stake with temptation than meets the eye. It's never just... See, the temptation is... Oh, it's just me and God in this one situation. It's just this one. It's just one more beer. Which how many of you know for some people, it's never just one more beer. It's broken families. It's anger outburst. It leads to other things. It's, it's, just, it's just one more piece of cake. <laughs> just one more. Just, just, I'll, I'll start my diet tomorrow. It, it's just between me and God in this one piece of cake it's just this one new car purchase I can't afford I'm going to get into debt for six years for this one impulse this one moment it's just between me and God and he's okay with it it's just this one moment it's just this one outburst of anger it's just this one fit of rage I was with a guy once he was in his early 50s he was 52 at the time I don't remember if I told this story last week or not. I've been here a week now, so if I repeat myself, everybody just be kind and go, ah. Um, 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 but he was 52, 53 years old, and we were praying together. All a bunch of us were praying together. And there was a lady who I'd never met before, and, and, there was, um, and there was a group of us. And this lady was very prophetic, very much the real deal. And I, we had never met her before, but she asked if she could pray for this man. And so this man said, sure. So he came forward, and she said, sir, I'm seeing you. I'm crouched in the fetal position. It's a yellow house on the outside with old wood paneling um, on, on the wall. And, um, and you're crouched in the fetal position by a stove. There's a stove, a wood stove that was used to heat the, the, the whole house. And you're crouched in the fetal position. You're roughly nine years old, I'm guessing. And I'm seeing your father walk into the room. And your father walks in the room and he's yelling. And he said this to you. And she quoted something that this man's father had, had said to him when he was nine. This man who I knew very well, and he's the real deal, and he is not an emotional freak of nature or anything like that. This man started heaving and crying. I'm talking about crying to the point stuff's coming out of his nose, stuff's coming out of his mouth. He, and I'm, I'm, I knew this guy. This guy was the real deal. He is, he is crying and weeping so hard from that, and she said, that's been the seedbed of your depression for all of these years. This man had been hospitalized four different times for depression in his life. And, and, and I, I, I thought about that. I thought maybe when his dad did that, because he kept saying, my dad was a good man. It was just that. And maybe when his dad did that, he convinced himself, oh, it was just one outburst of anger. It was just one fit of rage. God will forgive me anyway. No, no, no. This affected, this man was 53 years old. So for 44 years, he had been dramatically affected by that one moment. See, I think sometimes with temptation, if we can just step back and realize that there's something far more at stake with temptation than meets the eye. If we could ever just step back and realize, if I buy this car, I, I, I'm going to have to make payments for six years. 
and I'm going to end up paying way more than the car's worth, and it's going to go down so fast in value, I can't keep up. And yeah, if I just drink this, if it's just this one more beer, if it's just this one more, it, 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 then whatever, but, it, but it's not going to be that. If this one more beer is going to push me over the edge, then I might get a DUI on the way home. I, I might yell at my wife, this is going to affect everybody. This one more piece of cake, this one more piece of cake, it, it, could, it, could, it could be just one more piece of cake, but if I step back and realize this could be the thing that throws me over the edge to diabetes, this could be the thing that causes heart disease, it's never just one more piece of cake. The, the second thing is there's first thing is there's always more at stake with temptation than ECI. Second thing is overcoming temptation has far more to do with who we trust than our willpower. Far more to do with trust than willpower. Has far more to do with this. Where's our eye on? What, what are we thinking like? Beating temptation has far more to do with do we trust the people to bring three cookies out? Do, do we trust that God's way is three cookies better than our way? Where in our life are we settling for one cookie when God intends for us to have three? Where in our life does God have three cookies waiting for us if we'll just die to our need to be in control of the one? It, 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 it's not so much about willpower of not eating the one cookie. It has everything to do with do I trust that the three cookie is a better way? Mm. I've, had, I've had so many teenage girls in my counseling office and they say stuff like this I, I thought that he would love me more if I crossed the line morally with him and so I did and when I woke up I was lonelier than ever before it wasn't so much that they succumbed to sexual stuff that that girl it, it's it's more it's, it, they do succumb to sexual stuff, but bigger than that, it's more for a moment, for just a brief moment, I trusted that my way was better than the God's way. It, it's just a moment. And all it takes is just that moment, and then it affects their whole life. Once, I mean, I, I, in a room this size, most of us, um, anybody over a certain age, would have something, some decision that they did way back in their past that they thought was just about the moment that they still every now and then think about today. It's trust. Um, see, Jesus died not to just forgive us from this stuff, because we are forgiven. Jesus died to free us from slavery to it. Jesus died so that we would not have any slave drivers in our life. Jesus died so we would be free from this stuff. So that we could be free to be leaders in God's biggest idea. Free from the slave driver of temptation. Free from the slave driver to eat the one cookie instead of the three. Mm. It's all about perspective, isn't it? Remember the Wizard of Oz? Did you guys, you guys watch the Wizard of Oz ever here? Like the Wizard of Oz? Like we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, that guy, okay? Like, remember, remember Dorothy and like the Tin Man and all of them? They were all so frightened of the wizard. Remember how scared they were to the wizard? They were just scared to death of the wizard. And they, and they get in, like the 1937 version is pretty cool because they get in and, 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 and it's like this huge curtain and he's like, who dares call me? And everybody's frightened of the wizard. But when the wizard finally steps out, he's like a midget that's bald. <laughs> it, 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 so he comes out and this guy... That, that, was, that, was, that was so scary and spooky is like five foot two. And remember, remember their response? They're like, Are, you're the wizard? Like, you're it? You're the guy we've been scared of? In, in every temptation, in every temptation, there's a guy behind a big screen that makes us so scared like we have to give in to this. But the truth of it is, is if he ever revealed himself, we would realize how weak it really is. And if we could ever hold on just once, if we could ever not eat that cookie once, it would give us so much reinforcement when God gives us the three that the next time is so much easier and so much easier and so much easier and so much easier to finally we have beaten that thing because Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. Jesus died so we could be slave driver free. In other words, sin can't tell you what to do. In the midst of temptation, the tendency is to think that the only thing going on is what's going on right now. Should I eat this dessert? Should I call him back? Should I do this thing that might be a sin? Should I make this decision? There's so much more. In Jesus' temptation, 
It's not just about breads and hills and devils and angels. It's about me and it's about you. So much could have been sabotaged right there. Could you imagine if Jesus would have rationalized, man, I'm starving. God wouldn't want me to starve. I'm starving. And in the moment, what if he'd have rationalized, I'll meet this legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's just between me and God and God will forgive me. What What if he would have done that? It's not just between him and God. It's not just between him and God. There is far more at stake than meets the eye. And he tells this story about God providing bread from heaven. I love this story. I love this. I love this part of, of Jesus. He, he looks at the devil and he says, you must have forgotten who you're dealing with. I come from a group of people who had to believe God in a desert with no food and no water to meet our needs. And he did every single day. Do you remember where I came from? I came from a group of people that Moses got out of the promised land, of, of Egypt towards the promised land. I come from a group of people who came up against the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted. There was 30 feet high, a wall of water on each side. Moses is trying to get 5 million people. You're talking about the whole nation of New Zealand, plus some. He's trying to get them through a 30 foot high wall of water. Can you imagine the challenges? Because everybody wouldn't have been full of faith. And somebody would have been complaining about the wind. <laughs> imagine Jesus trying to get, imagine Moses trying to get everybody through that thing. And there'd be some woman, you know there'd be some woman, if you ever watched an action movie, you know there's some woman that just is, won't cooperate. <laughs> and she's a good-hearted woman. She just, she just can't. So she'd be standing there, I just can't. I just can't. I just can't. And the Pharaoh's coming. All the chariots are coming. And Moses like, get in the water. And Moses trying to get everybody through the water. And little Johnny sticking his hand in the water. 30 foot high wall of water. Little Johnny's trying to catch the mullet. Little Johnny's mom like, Johnny, don't put your hand in the water. Could crash in. Little Billy's down playing in the mud, making sandcastles. Moses trying to get everybody going. Everybody goes. He gets them out of the water. He gets them out of the water. And, and, and he looks and he's fixing to lower the boom on the Pharaoh. And he looks down and little Johnny's playing in the mud again. And Moses is like, would somebody get little Johnny out of the water? And he gets little Johnny out. He closes it down, kills the entire of, of, of Egyptian. Now, how... How much, how far do you think that Moses would have credibility for from then? Doing this, water does this, you walk through, you do this, it closes down on the largest army in the world. How, for how long do you think he should have credibility for? You'd think for the rest of his life, hey? But how many of you who've ever been in leadership know that's just not true? <laughs> that the very people you think would be there for you through thick and thin are the people who will not. Yeah, people are fickle. Three days later, they wanted to kill Moses. Like they, they were going to kill him. Moses had to retreat up a mountain to keep them from killing him. Why? Because they got thirsty. They got thirsty. What'd you bring us out here to die? It's just people. So God says, hit the rock. Hit the rock. Now, how many of you remember flannel graphs? Remember flannel graphs in Sunday school? Remember how big that rock was Moses hit? It was like this big. And this little spout of water came out top of it. You're talking about five million people. There would have been mass chaos. <laughs> you imagine that? Line up single file at the water fountain. Now, can you imagine? Now, he, Moses hits the rock, and enough water comes out to water three to five million people. Now, I don't know how much that is, but that is a lot of water. And all of a sudden, everybody's attitude changes again. We're singing in the rain. Sing. Everybody's attitude changing. Everybody's jumping in the water. Little Johnny's mom is like, little Johnny, don't use the toilet in the water. The slave girls are jumping in and coming out. Coca-Cola's out there with their video cameras. Slave girls are coming up out of the water doing like this, and it says, Coke, refreshing. Entrepreneurial little Jewish entrepreneurial slaves, people that got, they find plastic containers and they're dipping in water, walking around, you know, selling their water. This whole thing changed in an instance. Then they had to believe God every day for food and water. And and Jesus says, don't you know where I came from? Don't you know where I came from? I come from a group of people. We were in a desert with no water 
five million of us, and God provided manna every day. And I will die up here before I'll meet my own need and not trust God for it. Because he knew there's three cookies on the other side. It wasn't worth it. He knew that temptation affects three things. It's not just between you and God. Temptation at least affects three things. Number one, it affects your future. Temptation affects your future. And if you don't care about that, temptation also affects the future of the people you love. And, but more importantly, um, temptation affects your faith. The, the temptation of the enemy for us is always to turn stones into bread. It, it's always to take something that's our truth and make it God's truth. Take your guilt, turn it into bread. You're forgiven, completely innocent of any sin, but you just feel guilty the rest of your life. That's good. You need to feel guilty. God will like you better if you feel guilty. It's like he's happy with you or something. Uh, that, that anger. Yeah, I know, I know that the Bible says don't even associate with one easily angered. But, but you be angry. That's just you. People don't understand what you've been through. Turn stones into bread. That rejection. That bitterness. Yeah. See, it's very easy to see this in others. See, people say anger. Well, what about righteous anger? Well, the problem with righteous anger is you always think you're right. We always think we're right. Hmm. See, it's really easy for me to see this in your life, and it's easy for you to see it in mine, but can we see it in ourselves? A, a, a mom that can't quit drinking. This isn't just about a mom who can't quit drinking. This is about a broken home with kids with emotions who are going to be affected. A dad who has affairs. This is broken homes. A, a, a person who can't control their anger. This is broken relationship. All of this affects generations. It affects generations. See, a six-year-old who cannot control their impulse is a six-year-old eating a cookie. A 36-year-old who can't control their impulse, we got a real problem. And I think sometimes it's as easy as sitting back and pausing and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is going to affect my future. This is going to affect the future of the people I love. And more importantly, this is going to affect my faith. Do, do you realize this is what I found? And, and, and we'll break with this thought. This is what I found is that almost nobody believes their way out of Christianity. I have people all the time come to me and they say, Shane, I just don't believe this Jesus stuff anymore. And if they'll let me get into it with them, almost 100% of the time, this is what I find, that at some point in their past, they had a moment that they just thought was between them and God, and they compromised something that was very important, and it started chipping away at their faith. And so they ate the one cookie and it chipped away at their faith because they met their own need. They didn't need God right then. They met their own need. It was a legitimate need and they met it in an illegitimate way. So it chips away at their faith. And 10 years down the line, they don't believe anything anymore. Most people do not believe their way out of Christianity. Everybody behaves their way out of Christianity. Do you understand, do you understand that in Jesus' situation, in Jesus' situation, if he turns stones into bread, it just might have started sabotaging his faith enough that maybe the next day he meets his own need and maybe the next day and maybe the next day. So by the time that comes time for the cross, the faith that it took for him to get on the cross just isn't there anymore. So if his faith is sabotaged, then the cross is sabotaged. And if the cross is sabotaged, then we are sabotaged. It is never just about you and God in the moment. It is always about you and God in the moment and your future and the future of the people you love and your faith. But the good thing is, is Jesus died so that this couldn't be your master. So I want us to end this session by, 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 with a word of faith confession that will leave you feeling empowered, okay? I want everybody to, to say this after me with some gusto, okay? You guys ready for some gusto to kind of loosen yourself up, all right? All right, ready? I want you, everybody say this. I want you, you're going to, I promise you, I, I've prayed an anointing to come over this, and you're going to feel really, really empowered, okay? You, you ready? Say this with me. Temptation. Temptation. You're not going to take my future. Okay, a little bit more togetherness. You ready? Because that was like, Listen now, that was something else right there. There was this, this trickling effect going on. All right, you ready? Temptation. Temptation. I love it.
Temptation. Temptation. You're not going to take my future. You're not going to take the future of my loved ones. And you're not going to take my faith. Now I want you just inside yourself, I want you to position yourself of faith. Tefillah, Teshuvah, Sadaka. I want you just to turn your head and face the one who can bear the burden. I want you to have a moment of repentance for where you've given in. I'm not saying we're good-hearted people and we do it. You want to think like a kingdom person. I want you to just take that position. I am a, I am a kingdom person. I am a person of God's. Your future, the future of the people you love, and your faith will be secure because we will stand against it. We will trust God. We will not compromise for the one cookie. We will trust God for the three. Just let that empowerment settle up in you. Sin can't tell you what to do one more day. That anger has no power over you. That rejection doesn't have any power over you. You can stand against it today and be a better leader in the kingdom of God. Lord, would you send us to our break tonight with this to ponder that temptation can't have our future. It can't have the future of the people we love. And it cannot have our faith. We will overcome, for we will trust God. Amen. Amen. God bless you real good. I guess we'll just dismiss, we'll just dismiss to, uh, to, um, to tea. Whatever you call it, tea.